Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Well, investors will likely focus on mainland economic data out today and also U.S. earnings. Earnings of S&P 500 companies will be out in droves this week, offering analysts and investors improved data on the performance of the global economy. The World Bank upped its estimates last week for the global economy. This week, we'll get more from the IMF. Mainland housing prices are surging, and that complicates the picture somewhat of the Chinese economy. Bloomberg reports that China's new home sales last year likely exceeded one trillion U.S. dollars for the first time ever. And we'll also be hearing from a Fed president who says the Fed is likely to discuss more tapering of its bond buying. I thought it made sense to initiate a process of bringing the program to a close. And I expect this to be under discussion, further, further reductions in the pace of, of purchases to be under discussion at all of our upcoming meetings. So we'll hear more from him in just a moment. That's the Richmond Fed president, Jeffrey Lacker. And our guests this morning include Enzio Von File from MCL Assets, Peru Sagzena of Peru Sagzena Wealth Management, and Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent in Washington. Asian markets are mixed and light this morning. The Nikkei down 14 points at 15,720. In Australia, just a, a bear movement down there with the ASX 200 off 8 points at 53. So that's a drop of uh, 17 one-hundredths of a point. And in Seoul, the cost is actually a point higher, 1946. In terms of currencies, the dollar-yen, 104.26. Not too much of a change there. The euro, a little weaker against the dollar, 135.27. Well, let's take a look at this report about China's home sales uh, before we bring in our first guest this morning. China's new home sales, as we mentioned, probably up over a trillion dollars for the first time. Property prices in the first tier cities surged in the absence of any more property curbs. China Real Estate Information and Centiline made the estimates of the data that is out later today. And we'll also be getting uh, GDP numbers as well as industrial production and retail sales. And also with the relatively weak recent U.S. jobs numbers, Mr. Lacker, the Fed president, thinks tapering is still the right thing to do. When the F1C met in December, it decided to reduce the pace of asset purchases from $85 billion a month to $75 billion a month. I supported this decision because it was consistent with the linkage the committee established between the asset purchase program and the outlook for labor market conditions. So I supported tapering. Uh, this uh, purchase program. Since the program began in late 2012, we've seen a substantial improvement in a wide variety of labor market conditions. So I thought it made sense to initiate a process of bringing the program to a close. So we'll be talking uh, more about uh, that uh, comment that he made and the fact that the Ted may con- Fed may continue to taper its bond buying, uh, even with the relatively weaker economic data of late. Uh, the latest jobs number, of course, was far below major estimates. Gold is trading at $1,256. So gold has picked up pretty nicely from down around 1175 in the past couple of weeks. Oil prices, $106.44 a barrel. Oil has been moving down at a time when stock prices have been moving up. And that also is uh, a little bit curious. So let's bring in our first guest, Peru Sagzena of Peru Sagzena Wealth Management. Peru, good morning. Good morning, Brian. 
We'll get to Barry Wood uh, out of Washington uh, in, a, in a few minutes. But, Prue, there is a lot of confusing data, you know, not least of which the China home prices continuing to surge while you've got a, a debt problem there and uh, many other um, uh, curious bits of data. And in the United States, you have the Fed seemingly intent on tapering, even though here of late the economic data hasn't been very good. Well, Brian, our view is that the stock market in the U.S. is in a primary uptrend. And we've had a bit of a pullback in early January, but we suspect that this consolidation will resolve to a new uh, high in the, uh, most of the indices. The Nasdaq has already gone to a new uh, 52-week high. Uh, the monetary backdrop in the U.S. is still very favorable. Housing is improving in the U.S., and that is a big tailwind for the economy. It's a big em- uh, employment generator. So we are pretty... Uh, optimistic about the prospects of America and Europe and Japan. Okay, so the trend has been up, and it's nice to follow trends, but trends, you know, at some point they change. And if you look at the yield on the 10-year Treasury, it has been going lower. And that seems to suggest that, you know, bond investors are not that confident that the U.S. economy is picking up with as much gusto as you suggest. Well, I'm actually relieved that yields have come down a bit, because I think the big problem for the stock market eventually is going to be rising interest rates. So this uh, bit of a breather in the rally in the yields is actually quite a welcome respite. I think the yields are also going to work higher. Uh, If the economy continues to improve in the US, then I suspect the yields are going to go way higher. And eventually, you're going to get the yield curve inversion in the next bear market. But I think we're not there yet. So you think they're telling the same story. The reason the stock prices of late have sputtered a little and the reason that uh, bond yields are down a little bit, just a little bit of confusing data. But it seems like you're pretty confident that when the uh, full story emerges, it's a positive one and it's not a, a one of slippage. Big bear markets, Brian, usually happen when you have the yield curve inversion after a period of time when the Fed has raised short-term interest rates and when the short-term interest rates, the Fed funds rate is higher than the longer-term maturity. That's called the yield curve inversion. And generally, big bear markets occur after the inversion. At the moment, the yield curve is very, very steep. So I think it's going to be very difficult for a big sell-off. I think eventually, maybe two or three or four years down the road, the yield curve will invert and that will be the time to get defensive. But until now, that happens, I think investors should use sell-offs as buying opportunities. Okay, I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about this region here, because we do have Barry Wood coming on in a few short minutes, and we'll we'll discuss um, U.S. conditions with him extensively. Um, China has has broken its big hiatus of, uh, of about a year on initial public <laughs> offerings, IPOs. Uh, that seemed to get a little bit of attention. Good news of late. And uh, New Wave Valve, which, uh, which came out uh, late last week, spiked at one point. Uh, mid-session uh, Friday up, something like 30%. Yet at the same time you have these IPOs coming back, you've got liquidity at the lowest uh, levels that we've seen in a long time. Couldn't that be bad? Well, I don't particularly like the Chinese economy. I think it's very re- dependent upon fixed asset investment. In my view, at least, there is a big property bubble brewing in China. It's going to end badly. The stock market clearly doesn't like the economy. If you look at the Shanghai Composite Index, it's been a disaster for the past five or six years. And I suspect stock investors are discounting the looming bust in housing. So I would personally stay clear of China. Prices climbed 20% in Guangzhou and Shenzhen from a year earlier. Uh, Prices on on housing were up 18% in Shanghai, 16% in Beijing. They increased, uh, this latest report showed, they increased in 69 of the 70 cities tracked by the government. Um, You think that it's too much? 
too well, soon. Well, if you remember the Nasdaq, Brian, it almost doubled uh, in about two years in the late 90s. And look how that ended. You know, just because something's gone up by 18% doesn't mean it is sustainable. If you look at the valuations, you look at the home affordability in China, it is off the charts. Real estate uh, in China is now massive compared to GDP, the value of real estate that is. And usually these sort of uh, metrics are not sustainable. Affordability is what always... Uh, it is what it comes down to always with property and affordability is off the charts. Okay, here's why you're wrong. Um, <laughs> you probably love to hear that. Now, um, Sean Ryan from China Market Research last week was telling us that what a lot of people don't realize is that there are so many people at the lower end that are buying property and they are buying it with 60% down or 50% down and they plan to hold it uh, and they, they're working in factories now and they plan to go back to their homes and live in it. So yes, it's empty now, but it doesn't bother them one bit because they have bought this for the longer term and uh, longer term and they're quite confident about China's future and that's why guys like you are getting it wrong. Well, if you look at the uh, apartments or the in some cases entire towns which are empty, they are not meant uh, for the low um Income earners, you look at the values of these apartments, they are very expensive. There's no way these factory workers can afford these. And that's the problem. The supply of stock, which is unoccupied and unsold, it is exorbitantly expensive and the average Chinese person cannot afford it. And I don't know who they're building for. People in the bottom eighth have moved up to the bottom quarter and people uh, in the bottom quarter have moved up to the uh, to the kind of third level. You know, they're moving. They're on the move in China, Puru. Well, why isn't the stock market uh, confirming that bullish well, that's, thesis? Well, that's a difference story. And I think the main reason for that is that the stock market is made up of, of all these gas-guzzling, old, uh, overcapacity, state-owned enterprises. And the really better companies in the private sector, like uh, you see with a lot of the uh, new consumer companies and the internet companies and logistics companies, they're not listed. You can't buy them. Well, I may be wrong. You know, I don't know. But what I, all I know is that throughout history, whenever you have huge... Uh, Displacement in asset values in relation to valuations, it has never ended well. And if you look at uh, Dubai, if you look at America, you look at Japan when they had their bubble, you look at Hong Kong in 97, these things never end well. And if you have a huge boom in anything where the public is fully invested and the valuations are sky high, eventually you get the abrupt reversal. I'm okay, not smart so enough to tell you when it will happen. So they will. reverse 30% and then three years later they're back up. I oh, mean, well, isn't that what go, happened in Dubai? Well, Dubai went down about 60%. Hong Kong fell 60%. I right. mean, China could go down 50, 60%. Yeah, it, did, it did take seven years for us to rebound here, but I think Dubai rebounded faster than that, didn't it? About four or five years. Yeah, okay. And you bought there too, didn't you? I did, yes. Yeah, last so, um, you know, so I guess it's it's important to keep all this uh, in perspective. Let's talk a little bit about Southeast Asia briefly. Uh, anything there? I know you look at, you've got programs that look at uh, stocks and how they're valued and, uh, you know, growth rates versus PE levels and uh, book value. Uh, are your models turning up interesting ideas outside of the U.S. or mainly there? Well, we're long Japan, we're long America and also Europe. Uh, we don't really see much strength uh, in the emerging markets. Our view is that the emerging markets topped out on a relative basis in April 2011. And since then, the world's developed stock markets have done much better than the emerging markets. And I think this will continue for maybe another three or four years. Okay. Single best investment idea of the moment? Well, I would stay long stocks, uh, maybe by Japan. Japan is now very uh, favorable as far as the seasonal pattern is concerned. Uh, if you buy Japan in November and sell in May, uh, even during this horrific 20-year bear market, you would have made money. And that is astounding. So I would go long Japan. So long Japan, long stocks, uh, short government bonds. You wouldn't own government bonds? 
I wouldn't buy government bonds here. And you uh, wouldn't buy gold and silver at the moment, even though they seem to have um, leveled out? No, I think the bear market is in force in gold and silver. I think they topped out in 2011, and I think they're going to go down for many years. Okay, Peru, thanks very much for joining us. A couple of other August guests waiting in the wings, so uh, we'll let you go. Thanks My pleasure. Very Thank much. you, Brian. Peru Sagzana, Peru Sagzana Wealth Management here on Money for Nothing. Well, he's tied up his horse at the saloon, and he's inside the saloon now with a phone uh, at hand, and he joins us now on the line from an outpost in Washington. Good morning, Barry. Good morning, Brian. Uh, I'm so glad you're sounding better. Uh, you're I, getting healthier. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, on Friday, we, we uh, posted more than $21 million for our charity that we raised uh, in the past uh, 45 days. So that got me in a very good mood and is carried through through the weekend through this morning. I know people probably think it's silly to, to be so cute about you riding up on the horse, but um, we, we didn't have a phone line into you while you were um, out on the, uh, in, the, in the corral, but now it's a good chance to talk about the U.S. economy. Um, I played a clip there from Jeffrey Lacker, the, the Richmond Fed president, and he seems, uh, he didn't even mention the, um, the weak uh, last U.S. jobs report. He was just saying over the past year, uh, unemployment has come down, jobs are being created, things are getting better, we're going to continue tapering. Is that pretty much consensus? Yes, I think it is, and I agree, by the way, with everything your previous guest said about the states, except for the idea that the stock market is uh, is a good buy right here. I think we're due for a correction. I do think the U.S. economy is getting better. I don't think there's any doubt about it. Yeah. The the curious thing, though, is that um, earnings will be the main focus this week, I, I think, for American investors uh, and probably for global investors, too, because all these big S&P 5 countries have such a global presence. And last week wasn't particularly good. Uh, you saw a couple of banks OK, a couple of banks that didn't do very well, like Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. Uh, they, they didn't look that great. Uh, you saw quite a mixed picture, and it's not exactly the robust uh, growing economy that we thought about three weeks ago. Well, I think that's true, and I think we're going to get see more of the earnings of major companies reporting this week that won't be as good as expected. That's Delta, that's uh, IBM, that's Johnson & Johnson, and Verizon. I think that uh, earnings are not growing at their gangbuster pace that uh, occurred last year, and they're below expectations. And uh, that notwithstanding, I think that while that may temper stock prices, I think the economy is slowly picking up and we're probably going to get to 3% growth. So that's uh, one reason the slight earnings misses that you think we will see a correction. What are you thinking, 10% or maybe more? Well, I think we're certainly due for it. I mean, look, if you go back five years, Brian, and you and your previous guests were talking about the longer term, I mean, we've had an extraordinary bull market over the last four years. In fact, it's close to five. Last year was got to be an exception. You can't have stock prices growing by 27 to 35 percent on most indexes. And when you look at uh, the P.E. ratios, those P.E. ratios stood at 15 back in January of 2012. Now they're at 17.5. So I don't think earnings growth is keeping up with this economy, and I think the market has probably gotten ahead of itself. But, as, again, your previous guest said, where else are you going to put money? Japan doesn't look that good, and certainly 
generally European stocks look pretty uh, pretty weak, even though they've had a good run. And what about job creation? Um, we spoke about this a little bit last week because it was mostly in focus then. Uh, but we, we have seen some other data that wasn't quite that bad. Retail sales, for instance, was okay. Um, do you think that the um, that last month's jobs report was a canary in the coal mine? No, I don't think so. I think that it was probably an aberration. I think that job growth is going to resume its previous trend line. But... Clearly, productivity gains are moving ahead of jobs added, and that means that the pace of job creation is not going to be as fast as anybody wants. That holds back consumer spending because wages are not rising. People are still worried about whether they're going to keep their job. There's still layoffs that are announced almost every two weeks. So the pace of job creation is not that great. It's not going to get much better, but I don't think it's going to fall off a cliff. Yes. Um, hang on, Barry, because I want to take a short break and, and then come back and, and we'll talk for another couple of minutes uh, and then we'll bring in Enzio von Feil, um, another guest uh, coming up in just a moment. But um, I would like to slip this in first. This is the announcement from the government and we'll be right back. Hong Kong has an aging population, which means our workforce will gradually decline. To tackle this issue, we can consider ideas such as helping homemakers and early retirees join the workforce, ensuring young people have the right skills, and attracting talent from elsewhere. The public engagement exercise on population policy will continue until February 23, 2014. Please share your views. For inquiries, please call 3142-2041. Twenty-one minutes after eight o'clock, more stimulating business talk radio here on Radio Three and the program Money for Nothing. Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent, is is with me on the line. Barry, um, how how much has the weather played a role in not only um, just the retail sales numbers being down a little bit, but just about everything really? I mean, so many types of business uh, uh, still do uh, you know come down to people being able to get out and about and move around. Well, I think people do forget overseas that uh, most of North America is a very cold zone. You know, not everything is Southern California or Florida. We've had a very cold December. It continues into January. Here in the corral, I've got my heavy winter jacket on and gloves. So I think that weather was a factor in those December job reports. I think it's going to be a factor in January as well. This is a very severe winter we're having. What about um, uh, the movement online? Because a lot of the retail uh, companies have disappointed with same-store sales, but it seems that, that people you know, go into the stores and then eventually do make their purchases, but they do it online. Is that all getting adequately tracked in your view? Well, I think it's certainly a big factor. I think that there are lots of companies tracking it. I don't think we have any official stats that really are reliable. But clearly, if you look at Best Buy over the last week, that stock really did fall off a cliff because they didn't get the traffic. And it wasn't as if people weren't buying flat-screen televisions. They were just buying them online. And Best Buy is more reliant on storefronts than it is on the website. This is happening in automobiles, too. Everyone who seems to come into a car dealership now has pretty much determined online what they want to buy. A lot of people don't understand that we have a law here in the States. You can't buy a car online. 
That's why Tesla, the electric car, is an aberration that may get some attention. But you have to go into a dealership to actually buy a car. Yeah. But the dealers do report, Brian, everyone knows pretty much exactly what they want before they walk in the door. I just think there's so much movement now in the way business is done. I just look at I'm planning a trip uh, for about uh, 12 days in uh, the Czech Republic, in Austria, and in Hungary. And uh, so I've booked every single uh, place I've booked through Airbnb, which is somebody's apartment. You know, I'm not staying in a hotel. So at least, you know, the hotel numbers, are they're going to be missing out one guy. And I just think that there's so much of a change in the way business is being done that, uh, you know, maybe our, our picture of the economy is not as clear as it could be. Oh, absolutely. And I'm delighted to hear you speak about Airbnb. This is, this is really a reversion to back to those days that I knew in those three countries you mentioned, right after communism, when in fact people offered their apartments directly. But you had to be there. You couldn't do it online, of course. There wasn't an online. Yeah, now but you can see all the, with, all the pictures and, uh, and, exactly. You see everything. And look at, look at what's happened with hotels.com and with booking.com. That's Expedia and Priceline. Okay. Those, anyone who's traveling who can see all of the hotels in a particular city and all of their prices, what does that do to the loyalty programs for Holiday Inn or for a Marriott or for the others? It puts uh, them under severe pressure. Everything is shifting online at a very rapid pace. Okay, Barry, got to let you go. Thanks very much for joining us. Always interesting. Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent, on the line from Washington. We say good morning to Enzio von Feil. Good morning, Brian. Senior advisor at MCL Assets Limited. Now, you say that the economic clock is pointing possibly to a trash crash. What is that? A trash crash is something that comes literally out of the blue that happens because we just didn't think that it might happen. And what I mean specifically is that, for instance, in China, with the shadow banking system alive and kicking, the ICBC bank, the world's largest bank by assets, for instance, recently decided not to repay the suckers who'd bought into a high-yield instrument worth half a billion dollars. That may cause a bank run. That may cause a run on all of those shadow banks who are issuing such junk. In the U.S., at the same time, you have mortgage-backed securities back on the being peddled yet again. And again, they may be something, there may be a default in one of those where, again, the locals, the people who bought them, the suckers who bought them because of high yields say, well, actually, we'd better pile out, bolt for the exits, and there you have a crash. And because of what you were just saying in a different guise, because of the Internet, these this fire catches much more quickly. It's a little bit like pine forests in Oregon where the floor is full of eucalyptus oil. And that's, I think, going to happen with the markets within the first quarter. So does that mean that you avoid equity right now and go back to the safety of government bonds? Yes. Short-term government bonds, gold and treasury bills. Yes, absolutely. So why gold? Oh, because gold is an insurance policy. It is not an investment now, I've not heard of people t trading in their insurance policies and trying to boost them up and down and chasing the market on insurance policies. I just feel that we all know that gold doesn't yield anything, that it co if anything, it costs because you have to store the stuff. But at the same time, if we're correct with this trash crash, which comes inter alia from this junk being issued – 
political issues in the Middle East, I call it the Muddle East, political issues in the East China Sea. If one of these things happens, where do people traditionally flock? They flock back to gold. So despite having been wonderfully wrong for a couple of years on this, as my wife would always rub in, I must say that I still remain an adamant bull of this insurance policy. All right. So you would turn uh, rather cautious here for the next, um, you said, short term? Uh, three months, yeah. Uh, three months. And uh, what are some of the uh, points that you'd be looking out for? What are some of the catalysts uh, uh, to uh, maybe change your mind that uh, things have, have uh, improved? Dr. Copper, mm. what I mean by that is that the global growth cycle, the economic clock does seem to be pointing up, ticking up more towards 11 o'clock as opposed to 5 o'clock, and, which would be a down. And I think that we have seen already, I don't have to think it, we have seen already that commodity prices are beginning to pick up. So I think that on a trend basis, the trend is always my friend, as with anybody, that I think the um, that you will find China's growth having to rebound for the very simple reason that there's a strong political imperative for this nation to get going again with its growth. Otherwise, the disgruntled people all connected yet again via Internet, not necessarily chat, looking chasing Best Buy deals in the U.S., but all connected via the Internet communicate with each other. And so I think the mandate for growth in China is very strong. That's yeah. one key point, the rising commodity prices. Yeah. And the other but, one, but they had been trending down for quite a long time, and oil is still uh, now trending down. Absolutely. I'm thinking more of the metals. I'm thinking more of the industrial metals, the steel shortages out there, nickel a little bit. Uh, clearly copper. And they've the picked futures. up of late. And, they've and been picking up of that's late. That's a good story. And, and, and people say Dr. Copper because, you know, copper goes into so much that uh, if you watch it, uh, you know, it's it's kind of like uh, the doctor tells you, you know, really what's happening. And, and, that, and that's why you call it Dr. Copper. That's why I call myself Dr. Copper. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So um, what about uh, this, this part of the world? Uh, you know, in China, we had reached overcapacity. And that's one of the reasons why commodities went down a lot because at the margins, a lot of the the um, big extra growth was coming because of um, a lot of extra purchases in China. So do you think that that overcapacity, you know, that it's been there for a while now and it's about it, it's kind of getting filled up. It's it's about ready to uh, to turn to a point when they need to buy more. Oh, yes, because Keynes works in China. He does not work in the U.S. or in Europe or in Japan. Oh, my God. We've only got a minute left. You're going to have to explain that. What the Very heck briefly, does that mean? people will go out and build roads in China. If they build roads, they need cement, they need torn, all this ah. kind of stuff. Hmm. That's on the rebound. And so I think that's why you will find this overcapacity moving down. There's no more excess supply of commodity in China. They need more of the stuff. They need more food because of the weather. And it looks like like economic growth is picking up a little in Hong Kong. In 30 seconds, how do you feel about the Hong Kong economy? Very optimistic. I think that when everybody wants to get out and everybody seems to be talking it down, I think it's time to be contrarian to start loading up on the place once this trash crashes out of the way with. Okay, Enzio, I'm unfortunately out of time, but thanks very Thank much. You. And uh, just so people know, Enzio has an interesting model. Um, uh, he actually um, uh, is able to give you investment advice uh, without charging uh, an ongoing commission. He, he gives you – how do you exactly price it again, Enzio? You, you charge them a one-off fee, that sort of I thing. I charge them one-off fees. I'm a financial doctor, financial GP, commission-free, impartial financial advice, okay. um, very reasonable pricing, one-off fees. All right, Enzio, thanks Thank very much. 
very much. Enzio von Feil, Senior Advisor at MCL Assets Limited. Okay, uh, looking just briefly at the numbers here, the markets are really not telling us uh, a big story this morning. Little up, little down, right across the markets that are open. And again, oil price is $106.44. Weather today, uh, looking at a um, pretty nice day, mainly fine for much of the day. Some haze expected. Cool in the morning. You felt that already. Maximum temperature at 19 degrees. Cold in the morning throughout this week. Money for nothing. The news is next. And here's Samantha Butler. The United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon says he's invited Iran to the opening day of the Syrian peace talks beginning in Switzerland this week. The United States has opposed Iranian participation, but Mr. Ban said he believes strongly that Iran had to be part of the solution. Mr. Ban said he and the Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif had agreed on the outcomes expected for the talks. Foreign Minister Zarif and I agree that the goal of the negotiations is to establish by mutual consent, a transitional governing body with the full executive powers. It was on that basis that Foreign Minister Zarif pledged that Iran would play a positive and constructive role in Montreux. The negotiations known as Geneva II will open in Montreux on 